The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Our study today is the Blessed Church. It's part of our study of the seven churches of Asia that are found in chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation. And I know that most of you are regular here on this last Sunday of 2017. You've been here also for these 21 weeks of exposition through these two chapters. And we're also thankful, though, that our sermons get traffic from the Internet uh, we put them on our website for others to hear and to receive some benefit from the preaching of God's Word. So it is necessary for me to give at least a little bit of introduction to each of the sermons, uh, just to kind of let everybody know what we're doing here and where we are. But the Blessed Church is the church at Philadelphia. This is the sixth of the seven churches, and it's blessed because it's one of two churches that received a letter from the Lord in which he gives no warnings. There are no rebukes for their failures, not as he spoke to five other churches that were in error. There were many other churches in the first century that could have received letters from the Lord, but he need not write to them all because these seven are representative of conditions that are found in all, the good and bad that are found in churches of all ages of Christianity. So these letters actually are a, a microcosm of the history of the Christian church throughout the centuries. So I'm certain that there are churches in our time that are like the one at Ephesus that lost its priority of loving the Lord. There are churches like the one at Pergamos that compromised with the culture. There are ones like the one in Thyatira that went into deep doctrinal heresy there are ones like the church at Sardis, where Christ said, you have a reputation that you are alive, but you're actually dead. There are churches like the one in Smyrna, persecuted churches. And still, after all these centuries of Christianity, there are Christians in the world that are, that are persecuted. They've tried to live for the Lord, they've lived their faith, and they're persecuted by the world. But then, thankfully... There are there's some that are like Philadelphia. The news of the churches is not all bad. And though we must faithfully preach all the negatives that are in Scripture because the Lord requires it of us, it also gives us an opportunity to preach a positive message to His people. And thus He preserved a letter to a good church, a church that was what He intended that His churches would be. And they're blessed because they have the Lord's commendation. Now, each week I am required to preach about sin, to talk to you about compromise and warn you about it. I need to preach to you about ungratefulness, about heresy that comes in the church. The Lord expects us to preach all of those things. He called out churches for their unfaithfulness, and He expects our church, He expects me as a preacher of God's Word, to do the same, to call out churches that are in error, even if sometimes we have to do that by name. 
We're required to read and study and discover for ourselves what churches across 20 centuries have done that looked at these letters to find out what would the Lord say about my church. How do I fit in to this, these messages that the Lord gives to these seven churches? Are we to be commended or are we to be rebuked because our faithfulness to the Lord is not what it should be? And so now we do get the opportunity to look at a church that was obedient, and we look at this church, and as we do, we have the hope that this is what our church will be. We, we pray that the Berean Baptist Church is a church that the Lord would write a personal letter to, and He would say, you have things right. You, you're teaching my word. You are what I want my church to be. Now, truthfully, we have that personal letter because that's what the New Testament is. This is God's letter to us. The New Testament is for believers in Jesus Christ. It's the Lord's testament of the Christian faith to those of us who are chosen to salvation in Christ. Now, I'd like for us to read this letter again and notice again that the Lord doesn't fuss at them. He doesn't threaten them. His assessment of their work is positive, and He tells them because they're faithful that He'll grant them greater opportunities of service. In Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7, this is the letter to the church at Philadelphia. And to the angel, that is the pastor of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, Philadelphia is the blessed church, and this is the church that we want to be. Let me tell you just a, a little bit of the history of Philadelphia. Uh, for newbies, if we have any, anyone here today who hasn't heard, this is not the city in Pennsylvania. Uh, there's no Independence Hall. There's no connection to the Revolutionary War. This is not American history that we're speaking of. There is no Declaration of Independence. There are no declarations made except this letter to a church that was serving and glorifying Jesus Christ. But this is the city in the, in the ancient world, the one for which our city in this country is named. Philadelphia is derived from the word Philadelphos, the Greek word Philadelphos, which means one who loves his brother. Now that certainly sounds to us like a Christian ideal, that surely this must be a Christian city, and this is why it's founded, because of Christianity. But that's not right. Uh, this city was founded long before there was a Christian church. 
But yet it's not as old as the other uh, cities that w- these other churches were in. It's not as old as the cities of Ephesus, not as old as Pergamos or, or Sardis. This is a city that was founded only about 150 years before Christ came. It was settled by, by colonists who came from Pergamos, and it was founded during the reign of King Attalus II, who was ruling in Pergamos. The city took its name from the love that Italus had for his brother Eumenes, and in honor of that love, they named the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It wasn't settled for defense. Now, many cities at that time were, were built up and made fortresses for defense of the empire, but this is not a city that's made for that purpose. In fact, it's, uh, it, it became a city during the time of Roman peace. Uh, this is the time when Rome was, was ruling, and it had no strategic military importance, but it was, in fact, strategically important. Philadelphia was intended to be a peaceful city, that there would be no war there, because the reason it was founded was for the advancement of the Greek language and the Hellenistic culture. It was founded so that two areas of Asia Minor, Phrygia and Lydia, would learn the Greek language, and then they would be saturated with that Hellenistic culture, and you may recognize those two, those two regions, Phrygia and Lydia, from the travels of the Apostle Paul. There are never any accidents in God's plans. The Greek language was integral to the availability of the gospel in a language that large numbers of people could understand. Now, you remember we talked about that in the Christmas message last week. By the time that Christ came, Greek was known across the entire world, the known world, and this figures into something we'll talk about a little bit later, significant a little bit later as we discuss the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, another interesting characteristic of this region is the similarity to our area here in California. When, when I uh, hike in Annadale, there's one part of the park, uh, if you're familiar with it, uh, I'm sure Steve is from riding the bike out there, one part of the park that has these large boulders and lots of volcanic rock. And the stones in that particular area are rough and sharp, so that I hardly ever walk in that part of the park because it tears up my shoes so badly. And I've caught a toe every now and then in those rocks, and I've fallen. And those sharp rocks will scrape off your skin. They'll cut you. I started to say sin. If they would, if they would cut off your sin, we'd go over there and take the whole church over there. But they don't, they don't do that. They, they cut off your skin. They scrape you all up. So I don't walk in that park because I don't particularly like falling on my face and getting scraped up. So I stay away from that. But all those sharp rocks are there because that area uh, and this area in general was long ago a center of volcanic activity. And so those rocks are lava that have cooled and those are very sharp rocks. And this lava makes the soil in our area very rich. And this is one of the reasons that grapes grow well in this area. The weather and the soil are perfect for grapes. And you find the same thing was true in Philadelphia. The city was on the edge of a plain that has a Greek name that means burned land. With the fertile volcanic soil, it became a producer of fine wines. Uh, Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, Napa and Sonoma counties are known for fine wines. That's what they tell me, at least. I wouldn't know because I don't know the difference between Ripple and Corbell, 
Uh, I don't drink this stuff, so I couldn't tell you what's a fine wine and what's not. But the part that the Philadelphians didn't know about this kind of soil, volcanic soil, is that it's also very good for marijuana. Marijuana grows in that same soil. And the wineries of Sonoma County and Napa counties have discovered that. And since tomorrow, it's legal not only to drink yourself into a stupor, but to stone yourself into senseless idiocy. The wineries have learned that we ought to grow marijuana as well as grapes, and that'll be a good crop for us. And I know many of you are anxious for tomorrow to happen, so you can go out and buy some. But thank the Lord for this as well, that the gospel grows where God plants it. And if there's any place that needs the gospel, our area needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's because sin breeds here like rabbits on fertility drugs. Uh, you just think about that when we get to talking about doors of opportunity in these next couple of weeks. Now one more important note about Philadelphia is that it's like our area, perhaps even worse for seismic activity, that there were lots of earthquakes. Those were common. And that's one of the things that makes for the spiritual comparisons that Jesus has in this letter. Each of the letters has this kind of a twist where Jesus uses a familiar point of reference and, uh, and, each, and each of these churches a familiar point that he plays off of that reference to make his point. Now, remember how he used uh, the two-edged sword when he spoke to one of the churches. And he, he used uh, the saying, uh, a stone with a new name that's written on it, or the rod of iron, or the church that looks like, living, like it's living but it's dead. Those are examples that were recognized as spiritual metaphors. Now, in this letter, the spiritual metaphors are things like a door of opportunity. That is, the gospel that must be pushed out into the surrounding area. But another metaphor that you, you read it just a moment ago as we looked at the letter was the pillar, the pillar in the temple. And that stands for stability in an earthquake zone where there is no stability. And so with that history, we move on, and that helps us to understand references that are in the letter. Without the background, then we miss the implications of these spiritual metaphors. Now, let me remind you then of the, our history in studying this letter. We began a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago or so, by, by speaking of the omnipotence of Christ. In the introduction of the letter, Christ is presented as Almighty God. That's in verse number 7, where he says he is the holy and the true. Only God can make this claim. Only God is perfectly holy. Only God is full of truth. And you remember that the word used there for truth is a word that means that he is truth, that personally he is truth. He holds the key of David. That's a euphemism for ruling authority or the sovereign way in which he dispenses the treasury of his benefits for his people. And the sovereignty of Christ, that will also come back into view again as we talk about the gospel of Christ. But now going on in our study we come to the commendations that Christ made to this faithful church and what the Lord has to say to them because of their steadfast obedience. He doesn't say anything negative about them. He doesn't warn them. What we read here is all good for God's people. And the only negatives are what we read for those who stand against God's people. Now then, what are these good comments of the Lord? What does he speak of? Well, secondly in your outline 
is he speaks of the obedience of this church. In verse number 8, he says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Now, nine years ago, I preached from this text. I preached exactly the same outline that I'm going to preach today, but that's the shortened version. I preached it uh, during the Revelation series where we handled each of the churches in one sermon. This is the expanded version of that in case you hadn't noticed. And if you decide that you're going to opt for the shorter version and listen to that instead of coming back to hear the rest of this, then you will receive the curse of Sardis and not the commendation of Philadelphia. So I suggest you stick around to hear all the messages about Philadelphia. Jesus said to them, I know your works. And then he added to that, you have a little strength. Is that a criticism? Does he mean to say that you're a church that should be doing better than you're doing? I read one commentator that said that. Um, He didn't say it in those words, but he said it in so many words. And that, of course, is what commentators do. They have... They say things in so many words. And in his opinion, Christ said to them, you are a church without vigor. Your spiritual vitality is gone. Basically what you have done is to lay down on the job. Is that what Christ means when he said this? Well, if that's what he means, then that's far out of character with the other comments that he makes about the church. But no, the Lord doesn't say that to them. He, he doesn't tell them that he's going to slam the door shut because they're a weak church, that he'll not work in this church any longer. You haven't done anything with the abilities that I've given you. That's not what he says to the church. But rather he says, I'm about to swing open a door of opportunity for you because he knows that they've handled what they've already been given. They're faithful to what they've already been given to do. And so he's going to give them these more opportunities because they prove themselves that they are worthy of more. He means that though they are few, though they're few in number, though they don't have battalions of Christians to fight with, and though the opposition to them was great, still, a small church, a few people, had influence in their city. There weren't many of them, but they were people that worked. They were people that reached out. They were people that were saved, and they showed it through their testimony. Now, the Lord doesn't measure spiritual influence by numbers. Big churches are not necessarily powerful churches, and small churches are not necessarily weak churches. I've seen that proved in my many years of ministry. When I was a child, my my father went to pastor a small country church in the hills of Kentucky, and it was a farming community where there weren't thousands of people, there weren't even hundreds of people. But in that in that brief time, in a very brief time, that church was filled. Sometimes people would stand on the outside of the church at the windows, listening to what was said because they couldn't find a seat on the inside. And people from far and near were saved because of the testimony of that little church. Then later, my, my father decided to go, he was called by the Lord to go to a city church, and it wasn't a larger church. In fact, by, it was smaller than the one that we left. On the first Sunday, there were 13 of us in church. Six 
Hicks were our family. Uh, we met underground in a basement that had no building above us. But it wasn't long before the basement was filled. Then we built a sanctuary on top. And then we filled that building. We ran out of room, and so we built another building in addition to the building. Then we filled that one up, and then we built another building. And I can remember summer nights and Bible school on summer nights when we would bring in 600 children into a packed building with kids just wall to wall packed in so tightly that you couldn't squeeze another one in. And you wouldn't have recognized me in those days. In those, in those days, I was leading the singing for 600 screaming kids and going through the motions of deep and wide. And I may never zoom over the enemy. Or, or, or what is that next line? March in the infantry or ride in the cavalry. Um, I may never, what is it? Shoot the artillery. But I'm in the Lord's army, yes sir. That took 10 years off my life with those screaming kids. It's not likely I'll do that again. But those days are gone. We're, we're gone from the days when people pack out churches and you just can't squeeze another one in. We're gone from the days when in the, in the church doctrinal sermons were preached and people came to hear them because they wanted to know more about the Word of God. And we're gone from the days when we had revivals like then. American Christianity has gone in the opposite direction. We've gone away from God, not towards Him. And that has a whole lot to do with the power that's in the pulpits today. There is no preaching of power, the power of God in pulpits today. In other countries where you could be killed for going to church, people go to church. In Kenya, Pastor Mwango, when he wants to start a church, sometimes he, he finds a big tree. And he just gathers a crowd underneath a big tree and people are eager to hear the Word of God. He doesn't have a praise team. There's no fog machine out there in the field under the tree. There are no action-packed youth groups. They have a no building. They have no seats. But they stand or they sit on the ground to hear God's Word. Small churches might not look like they're doing very much. But... Don't we know that Christ changed the world with only 12 men? With just 12 men, he turned the world upside down. And with one man who said, I was born out of due time, that was the Apostle Paul. And with this small group of men, he changed the entire world. Oh, they had to be pushed out from Jerusalem uh, by the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But 12 men made a difference in the world. The gospel is still powerful. Do you see the word strength in this passage? This is the same word that's used in Romans 1.16 where it's translated as power. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So God, God doesn't need many. He needs a few good men and women who are faithfully dedicated to the work of the gospel Stay true to the gospel and the Lord will always make sure that he accomplishes what he wants it to do. Now earlier I mentioned that our sermons are heard by many that are around the world through the internet. And I've heard from several that listen. And I received a letter from some of them, a, man from, a letter from a man in India, in fact, uh, who told me that he always listens to the sermons on the internet before he explains a text to his people. 
That's humbling to know that a message that comes from a small community of believers, from a small church, from the Berean Baptist Church, that message is heard on the other side of the world by another of the Lord's congregations. Now, in John's time, the numbers that, uh, that heard could only be known by the noggins that showed up at church. But in our time, electronic media sends the message around the world Nobody can say we don't have any influence because we're relatively small. Let me assure you that we have power when we stay true to the gospel of Christ. And why is that? Because the Holy Spirit told us to preach it and He would use the Word. And we have the promise that if we preach it, He'll accomplish exactly what He wants it to do. And we may not see all that it does. We just need to know that God says it'll do what he said it will do. So I'm saying to each of you, we need to be faithful. We need to keep on supporting the ministry. Everything that God does with the Word won't be seen by us. And truthfully, it never was. Twelve men never saw the complete fruit of their ministry. We're here 20 centuries later because there were 12 men that were faithful to preach the gospel of Christ. When Paul wrote to the Roman church, he wrote to people that he'd never seen before. And yet he said, your testimony is heard of everywhere. He said this in Romans 1 verse 8. Your faith is spoken of throughout the entire world. Did you know there's nothing in the scriptures about the founding of the Roman church? So how did it get there? How did the gospel get from Jerusalem to Rome? Do you want to know how? It was through social media. Their social media was to walk somewhere with the gospel and get social with it. It's what you call FaceTime. A concept not known today. This was real live FaceTime. Now times change, methods change, the gospel doesn't. We're to use all the means that are available to us, but it still takes some real FaceTime. So I suggest what you do is to carry this Facebook around with you and spend some FaceTime with people that need to hear about Jesus. Well, Philadelphia was a church with a little strength. Jesus just means by that you're few in number. The opposition was great, but still they made a difference. Because they were obedient to Christ's first command in the commission, He said to them, I'm going to give you more. You prove that you're faithful, so you'll get more opportunities of service. Now let's explore that thought just a little bit further. What did this church do in their obedience? Well, we see in the text that first they persevered in the Word. They persevered. Jesus said, you have kept my Word. And we need to, to look behind the English version to discern the meaning of that statement. Kept is the translation of a word that means to guard. It means to, to keep an eye on it. And in this context, it means you are careful to keep your eyes on the Word and you are careful to stay in that Word. Look at verse number 10. We see the Word again. You have kept the Word of my patience. Patience is the same word as endure. That means you stuck with it. You stayed there. They persevered in the faith. They kept the Word by enduring patiently. Now let me help you to understand how this Word was perceived in their community. When they preached, they preached to people who didn't like what they heard. 
Well, what did they do then with a word that nobody liked to hear? What do you do with that? Well, they didn't do what churches do today. Today, churches are afraid if people don't like what they preach. If people don't like the word, we need to get them to like it. So, we've got to fix the gospel. We've got to make it better so they will like it. And there are people that are laboring under the false pretense that in old times, people just loved to hear the Word of God. They were all willing to listen. And so we say, today though, in the modern world, the gospel is just hard for people. And so we've got to pretty this thing up. And what do they do? Well, they stop preaching about sin. Don't talk about sin anymore. Don't talk about commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's leave that out of it. Can I tell you something about the gospel in the old times? People didn't like the gospel then either. Did we somehow miss the part that they killed Christians for preaching the gospel? Did you miss that part? They didn't like it. People have never liked the gospel of Christ. So do we see the apostles trying to change it to make it better so people will like it? Well, we needn't think that the gospel can be made better you can't make this good news better. The only way to get people to like what they don't like to hear is to give people what they want to hear. And because of the wickedness of the human heart, preaching them the gospel, the true gospel of Christ, you're never going to get people to like it. Not out of the depravity of their heart. The gospel exposes their sin. The gospel brings people to repentance and faith. And you leave out that conviction of sin. If that's not a part of what you preach, then you don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians were killed for preaching the old-time gospel. And did you know, still, it was the old-time gospel that permeated the Roman Empire, went throughout the empire, and thousands were saved. It swept the empire. So there was a revolution of the gospel of Christ. It was so expansive that paganism in the Roman Empire was at first destroyed. And when paganism could no longer stand it, when they were losing, Satan wised up. And he said, I've got to start my own church. This thing is growing like wildfire. I've got to start my own church. And so what did he do? He started his church and he dragged his paganism into it. That church is still here because Satan is relentless against the true gospel. His church is headquartered in Rome. And its reach is as extensive as the true gospel. Wherever the true gospel is found, you'll also find a counterfeit. A counterfeit of the gospel is always there where the true one is. That's when the gospel is fixed so that people will like it. But when you fix it, you've destroyed the product. What does the Bible tell us to do? Jude says, contend for the faith. Jude says, don't change anything. Stick to the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And this is what Jesus commended the Philadelphia church for. They contended for the faith. They kept the gospel just as it was given to them. They changed nothing. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Well, why do churches want to sweeten the pot? Why do they want to make the gospel more appealing? Why is it that they want a lesser gospel that does not insist that people give up their sin? Well, the easy short answer to that is they're ashamed of it. They're ashamed of what they preach. They want to be accepted by the world, not rejected. They want to be popular, not unpopular. Paul said, I'm not ashamed 
of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. Why should we be ashamed of what God says will work? Now, this gospel, the true gospel of Christ, is the great theological issue that faces the church today. Is the Bible good? Is the Bible true? Does this Bible fit the modern world? Are there too many parts that people are uncomfortable with? Well, if so, then we leave those parts out. We don't preach those parts. But I would have to ask, is that acceptable? Is the church right? Which church is right? The one that preaches it all? Or the one that's pragmatic? The one that's pragmatic to please people? In Acts 20, 27, it says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. That's a quotation from Paul. Well, I believe that Paul's trustworthy on that subject, don't you? This, is, this is, was spoken to the church at Ephesus 30 years before they received a letter that Jesus sent to them in Revelation chapter 2. Now, you go to the Ephesian letter in Paul's epistles and you read the book of Ephesians and you'll very quickly understand why many churches don't want to preach all the gospel of Christ. Oh, they're, they're confounded by chapters 1 and 2, in which Paul doesn't mince words on two very important theological subjects. The sovereignty of God and man's depravity in salvation. Sovereignty in salvation and man's depravity in sin. So, are we Philadelphians about those subjects? Are we faithful to God's Word, to those facets of the Gospel? Do we keep the Word? Do we preach those topics even though they're unpopular? One of the reasons that we preach the Bible verse by verse is so that we get it all. We don't leave any of the unpopular verses out. We still preach it. Now, the favorite method in today's pulpit is to preach topically, not expositionally. Now, you can preach a topical message expositionally, but that's not the way that it's usually done in churches today. Instead, preachers will choose a topic, and then they'll search through many, many Bible versions to try to find verses that are worded the way that they want to present, the doctrine they want to present. If they can find a verse here, there, and everywhere in some version of the Bible that supports their proposition, that's the way that they preach. So verses are tortured, they're taken out of their context, and if you take verses out of context, you can prove any doctrine that you want to prove. Uh, I know you've all heard the old joke, I've used it before, where Luke wrote about Judas, and he said Judas went and hanged himself, and Jesus told the Jews that they were to act like the Good Samaritan, and he said to them, go and do likewise. And those two verses are not connected. They, they don't have anything to do with each other, but both of them are in the Bible, and both of those are true. But you put those two verses together, and they're wholly untrue. Judas went and hanged himself. Go and do likewise. That's not true. You shouldn't do that. But that's the modern method of preaching. Philadelphia preached the Word just as they received the Word. They stayed in the Word, and because they did, there is a promise for them, a blessed promise. Now secondly, in their obedience, they profess Christ's name. They persevered in the word and they profess Christ's name. Thou hast not denied my name. 
Now, what's the trouble? Because they didn't deny Christ's name. Well, the name of Christ presents many problems for Christians. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, You will be hated of all men for my name's sake. Now, let me take you back to an issue that's common among each of these seven churches. The name of Christ... It's not about the letters that are in his name. They're not about the letters that make up the name. It's not about the sound of that name, whether it's a name that we like or dislike. There are names that I don't like. A good Bible name that you might want to give your kids, uh, your boys, is a name like Joshua. That's a good name for a boy. A bad one is what Isaiah named his son. You probably don't want to name your, saint, your son Maher Shalash Hashbaz. That, that might be a great Hebrew name, but that's not going to work on the first day of school. So you don't want to name your kids that. So it's not about, the name of Christ is not about, how does this name sound? Is that a good sounding name? No, it's the meaning of the name. The name stands for the person. To hate the name of Christ is to hate what he stands for. The name is everything that he is. He's, his name says that he's the master, and you can't be. His name says that he's holy and you're sinful. His name is true and the Bible says that all people are liars. He, he is, his name says that he's demanding and you're uncompliant. His name says that he's the judge and you're the party in his judgment. And then most importantly, relating to the first century issue, he is Lord, and he alone is Lord, and that put him in competition with the Caesars who claimed they were Lord. Christians collided with the culture on this. The, the cities that we're talking about here, they built temples to the Caesars, and they worshipped them as gods. So in each of these seven cities, they worshipped Caesar. For a time, even Philadelphia changed its name, at one time in history, it was known as Neo-Caesarea, the new city of Caesar. And they changed the name because they were in gratitude for what Caesar had done for them. Gratitude that they never gave to the true God. Isn't that exactly what Paul said people would do? Romans 1.21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So there's always this conflict going on in the first century between Jesus and Caesar. To be accepted into the culture, Christians must say, Kaiser Kyrios, or Caesar is Lord. Christians would never do it. Most of them shouldn't or wouldn't do it. To them, it's only Christos Kyrios. Christ is Lord. At first, it was okay if you said both. If you think Jesus is Lord, that's okay as long as you think that Caesar is Lord. If you say both, that's all right. But that changed. Once Caesar got his foot in the door into the hearts of the people, Jesus couldn't be there. You can't have both of them in the hearts of the people. Caesar is Lord is denial of Christ's supreme authority. If his, denied, if his, if his name is denied, then he's no longer the Lord of the church. In, in the Philadelphian church, Christians would not do that. They wouldn't say that Caesar is Lord. Only Christ is Lord. Now, you remember the Thyatiran church, they were willing to do it. They were willing to compromise. They had, they had an issue. They're going to lose their jobs. They can't, they can't, they've got to say Caesar is Lord. That, 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 that's just part of it. Jesus said, 
to Philadelphia. You've never done that. You've kept my name. Now, the difference in those two churches is easily seen by the church's descent into other heresies. It's their strong rebuke in the Lord's letter. That's the difference between Thyatira and Philadelphia. Philadelphia would not, and the Lord kept that church strong because of it. Because of their perseverance, the Lord had special promises for them. Now, I'm going to save those promises for the next time. But between now and then, I want you to think on two propositions. First, is what evidence is there, if any, that you have denied the name of Christ? Who, who might doubt that you are a Christian because you've denied his name? Secondly, what evidence is there, if any, that you've not denied the, the name of Christ? Have you been proactive in that, that you have not denied Christ's name? Who knows that you are a Christian because you have not denied Christ? Now, depending on your answer to those questions, is there cause that you would doubt your salvation? Or is there cause that you are assured that you know Christ as Savior? You're going to be one or the other. But for now, as I close, I want to return to this issue of obedience. Christos Curios, the one who wrote this letter, the omnipotent sovereign one, the one who's holy and true, the one who's eminently qualified to judge this issue, made a decision about this church. There's a verdict on their performance as a body of Christ on earth that's pronounced, and they are measured against the highest standard. It's the standard of righteousness and holiness and the truth of the author of the letter. And the author of the letter does not say anything about faults. There are no warnings. There are no threats. Instead, there are commendations and there are promises without any whispers of complaint. Are we justified in saying in these days that that's the way the Lord will judge us? If not, then why not? If so, then why so? How would the Lord pronounce judgment on us? Someday we're going to stand before the judge and then it's going to be too late to correct the errors. The time to do it, if we have something wrong, is to do that today, to do that now. And so, as Philadelphia, are we best described by the errors of Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis? Are we, or are we to be described by the virtues of a church like Philadelphia? Seven churches... And chapters 2 and 3 represent churches in all ages. Our duty is to look at the letters and to see where are we in these letters. Are we to be commended or are we to be chastised for not being faithful to the Lord's church? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, Lord, and once again, um, as we need to do every time we open the Word of God, is to confess that we are sinners. We're not perfect. We're not trying to say that we are perfect. We're not, even, we're not trying to say that Berean Baptist Church has never had a fault. Well, we know that we have, but we pray that we, pray that we would confess those sins and we would do something about those sins by the marvelous grace of your Holy Spirit that you would renew us to repentance and help us to overcome all these evils that we do. And Lord, we pray that 
we might be a church that's still working for you, that still walks through all the doors of opportunities that you give. Lord, we pray to be a Philadelphia church, one that can be commended, that there are no serious errors that need to be addressed. We, we thank you, Lord, that when we can stand true to your word and receive that blessing. We pray for your people today. Draw us close to you. We also pray for anyone here who might not know you as Savior and these things are foreign to their ears. But first of all, we must know Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And we want to keep preaching that message that people must repent of sin and trust Jesus Christ as Savior to save them from their sins or else there's an eternity in hell that awaits. Help us, Lord, to keep the gospel alive in this generation by being a church that preaches it everywhere that we go. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.